Hello and welcome back to our podcast. It is me, Damien Barr, bringing you another book of the week. We should have a jingle really at this point. But anyway, book of the week. That's a bit too sombre. Book of the week, a bit too perky. Anyway, it is time for another book of the week. And as usual, we have got a thrilling pick. And you should know, we spend ages sifting publisher catalogues and what's coming out next and reading through manuscripts and books to bring these to you. So I hope you're excited about this pick, our first ever co-authored novel. It's by best-selling author Jodie Picou and critically acclaimed author Jennifer Finney Boylan. It's already a New York Times bestseller and it's coming out this week in the UK. It's had loads of buzz. It's got loads and loads and loads of very positive reader reviews. So there you go. It is a word of mouth hit. Get ready for Mad Honey. Now, here's the premise. Olivia has escaped an abusive relationship and resettled in her hometown with her son, Asher, and Olivia is a beekeeper. Asher falls for Lily, a new girl seeking her own fresh start. But when Lily is discovered dead in her home, all signs point to Asher, and Olivia fears that he has inherited his father's violent tendencies. So all those big questions again about free will and the choices that we make really serious themes. The story alternates between Olivia and Lily before she died, and the book explores the relationships between mother and son, mother and daughter, and asks, how well do you know your own children? It's got it all, this book, a love story, a page-turning mystery, and a gripping courtroom drama. And it deals really seriously with themes around gender and domestic violence. And apparently, It all started because of a dream. In May 2017, Jenny woke up with the seed of the writing project that would blossom into Mad Honey. Here's Jodie with more about their unique collaboration. Hi, I'm Jodie Pico and I'm really excited to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon for my new book, Mad Honey, co-written with Jennifer Finney Boylan. Uh, Jenny and I decided to co-write this book based on a dream that she had that she posted about on Twitter. As I always say, it's the only good thing to ever come out of Twitter. But I was really intrigued by what she wanted to write about, added my own sort of flavors to that mix, and together we came up with a plot and a structure and decided that we would write a book in two narrative voices. I am going to be reading to you today from the first chapter. You'll get to hear a little of the beginning and then a little bit more at the end. And you're going to get to meet my narrator. Uh, That's Olivia. And she is the mother of Asher. In this segment, you get to kind of see the very special relationship that they have with each other, um, which is not normal because... uh, Olivia is a victim of abuse and took her son and ran, and they have grown up as a little unit, just the two of them, which is why the circumstances of this book become even more dire for Olivia. Um, I have to say that writing this book with Jenny was a delight. I had co-authored books before. I had written two YA novels with my daughter, Sammy. Um, But it's really different when you write with your teenage daughter versus when you write with an acclaimed, award-winning author like Jenny. Uh, You know, I couldn't ever tell Jenny to go to her room. And um, it also, I have to admit, made me a better writer. I am such a fan of Jenny's writing 
And I knew what she was going to give me in her chapters was going to be phenomenal. And it honestly just made me want to meet that standard. And I think overall, we had a great time writing this. We have our fingerprints all over each other's chapters. We edited each other's work back and forth. And because of that, I think the book feels very seamless, as if it's written by one author rather than two. And I certainly hope you agree. By the time I come downstairs that morning, Asher is in the kitchen. We have a deal. Whoever gets up first makes the coffee. My mug still has a wisp of steam rising. He's shoveling cereal into his mouth, absorbed in his phone. Morning, I say, and he grunts in response. For a moment, I let myself stare at him. It's hard to believe that the soft-centered little boy who would cry when his hands got sticky with propolis from the hives can now lift a super full of 40 pounds of honey as if it weighs no more than his hockey stick. Asher is over six feet tall, but even as he was growing, he was never ungainly. He moves with the kind of grace you find in wildcats, the ones that can steal away a kitten or a chick before you even realize they've gone. Asher has my blonde hair and the same ghost green eyes, for which I've always been grateful. He carries his father's last name, but if I also had to see Brayden every time I looked at my son, it would be that much harder. I catalog the breadth of his shoulders, the damp curls at the nape of his neck, the way the tendons in his forearms shift and play as he scrolls through his texts. It's shocking sometimes to be confronted with this when a second ago he sat on my shoulders trying to pull down a star and unravel a thread of the night. No practice this morning? I ask, taking a sip of my coffee. Asher has been playing hockey as long as we've lived here. He skates as effortlessly as he walks. He has made captain as a junior and was re-elected this year as a senior. I can never remember whether they have rink time before school or after as it changes daily. His lips tug with a slight smile, and he types a response into his phone, but doesn't answer. Hello, I say. I slip a piece of bread into the ancient toaster, which is jerry-rigged with duct tape that occasionally catches on fire. Breakfast for me is always toast and honey, never in short supply. I guess you have practice later, I try, and then provide the answer that Asher doesn't. Why, yes, Mom, thanks for taking such an active interest in my life. I fold my arms across my boxy, cable-knit sweater. Am I too old to wear this tube top? I ask lightly. Silence. I'm sorry I won't be here for dinner, but I'm running away with a cult. I narrow my eyes. I posted that naked photo of you as a toddler on Instagram for Throwback Thursday. Asher grunts noncommittally. My toast pops up. I spread it with honey and slide into the chair directly across from him. I'd really prefer that you not use my MasterCard to pay for your Pornhub subscription. His eyes snap to mine so fast, I think I could hear his neck crack. What? Oh, hey, I say smoothly. Nice to have your attention. Asher shakes his head, but he puts down his phone. I didn't use your MasterCard, he says. I know. I used your Amex. I burst out laughing. Also, never ever wear a tube top, he says. Jesus. So you were listening. How could I not, Asher winces. Just for the record, nobody else's mother talks about porn over breakfast. Huh, aren't you the lucky one then? Well, he says, shrugging. Yeah. He lifts his coffee mug, clinks it to mine, and sips. 
I don't know what other parents' relationships are like with their children, but the one between me and Asher was forged in fire, and maybe for that reason is invincible. Even though he'd rather be caught dead than have me throw my arms around him after a winning game, when it's just the two of us, we are our own universe, a moon and a planet tied together in orbit. Asher may not have grown up in a household with two parents, but the one he has would fight to the death for him. Speaking of porn, I reply, how's Lily? He chokes on his coffee. If you love me, you will never say that sentence again. Asher's girlfriend is tiny, dark, with a smile so wide it completely changes the landscape of her face. If Asher is strength, then she is whimsy, a sprite who keeps him from taking himself too seriously, a question mark at the end of his predictable popular life. Asher's had no shortage of romantic entanglements with girls he's known since kindergarten. Lily is a newcomer to town. This fall, they've been inseparable. Usually at dinner, it's Lily did this or Lily said that. I haven't seen her around this week, I say. Asher's phone buzzes. His thumbs fly, responding. Oh, to be young and in love, I muse, and unable to go 30 seconds without communicating. I'm texting Dirk. He broke a lace and wants to know if I have extra. One of the guys on his hockey team. I have no actual proof, but I've always felt like Dirk is the kid who oozes charm whenever he's in front of me, and then when I'm gone says something vile like, your mom is hot, bro. Will Lily be at the game on Saturday? I ask. She should come over after for dinner. Asher nods and jams his phone in his pocket. I have to go. You haven't even finished your cereal. I'm going to be late. He takes a long last swallow of coffee, slides his backpack over his shoulder, grabs his car keys from the bowl on the kitchen counter. He drives the 1988 Jeep he bought with the salary he made as a counselor at hockey camp. Take a coat, I call as he's walking out the door. It's... His breath fogs in the air. He slides behind the steering wheel and turns the ignition. Snowing, I finish. The first time it happened... I had only just signed up for Facebook, mostly so I could see pictures of my brother Jordan and his wife Selena. Braden and I were living in a brownstone on Mass Ave while he did his Mass General Fellowship in cardiac surgery. Most of our furniture had come from yard sales in the suburbs that we would drive to on weekends. One of our best finds came from an old lady who was moving to an assisted living community. She was selling an antique roll-top desk with claw feet. It was clearly an antique, but someone had stripped off its original finish, so it wasn't worth much, and more to the point, we could afford it. It wasn't until we got home that we realized it had a secret compartment, a narrow little sliver between the wooden drawers that was intended to look decorative, but pulled loose to reveal a spot where documents could be hidden. I was delighted, naturally, hoping for the combination to an old safe full of gold bullion or a torrid love letter, but the only thing we found inside was a paperclip. I'd pretty much forgotten about its existence when I had to choose a password for Facebook and find a place to store it for when I inevitably forgot what I picked. What better place than the secret compartment? We initially bought the antique desk so that Braden could study it, but when we realized that his laptop was too, too deep for the space, it became decorative, tucked in an empty space at the bottom of the stairs. We kept our car keys there and my purse and an occasional plant I hadn't yet murdered, which is why I was so surprised to find Brayden sitting in front of it one evening, fiddling with the hidden compartment. What are you doing? I asked. He reached inside and triumphantly pulled out the piece of paper. Seeing what secrets you keep from me, he said. It was so ridiculous, I laughed. I'm an open book, I told him, but I took the paper out of his hand. His eyebrows raised. What's on there? My Facebook password. So what? So, I said, 
It's mine. Brayden frowned. If you had nothing to hide, you'd show it to me. What do you think I'm doing on Facebook? I said, incredulous. You tell me, Brayden replied. I rolled my eyes, but before I could say anything, his hand shot out for the paper. Pepper 70, that's what it said. The name of my first dog and my birth year. Blatantly uninspired, something he could have figured out on his own. But the principle of the whole stupid argument kicked in, and I yanked the page away before he could snatch it. That's when it changed. His tone, the atmosphere. The air went still between us, and his pupils dilated. He reached out, striking like a snake, and grabbed my wrist. On instinct, I pulled back and darted up the stairs. Thunder, him running behind me. My name twisted on his lips. It was silly, it was stupid, it was a game, but it didn't feel like one, not the way my heart was hammering. As soon as I made it to our bedroom, I slammed the door shut. Leaning my forehead against it, I tried to catch my breath. Brayton shouldered it open so hard the frame splintered. I didn't realize what had happened until my vision went white and I felt a hammer between my eyes. I touched my nose and my fingers came away red with blood. Oh my God, Brayton murmured. Oh my God, live Jesus. He disappeared for a moment and then he was holding a hand towel to my face, guiding me to sit on the bed, stroking my hair. I think it's broken, I choked out. Let me look, he demanded. He peeled away the bloody cloth and with the surgeon's tender hands, touched the ridge of my brow, the bone beneath my eyes. I don't think so, he said, his voice frayed. Braden cleaned me up as if I were made of glass and then brought me an ice pack. By then the stabbing pain was gone. I ached and my nose was stuffy. My fingers are too cold, I said, dropping the ice, and he picked it up and gently held it against me. I realized his hands were trembling and he couldn't look me in the eye. Seeing him so shaken hurt even more than my injury. So I covered his hand with mine, trying to comfort I shouldn't have been standing so close to the door, I murmured. Finally, Braden looked at me and nodded slowly. No, you shouldn't have. I have sent half a dozen texts to Asher, who hasn't written back. Each one is a little angrier. For someone who has seemingly no trouble interrupting his life to text his girlfriend and Dirk, he has selective communication skills when he wants to. Most likely, he was invited to eat dinner somewhere and didn't bother to tell me. I decide that as punishment, I'll make him clean up the evergreens still strewn across the porch. On the kitchen table is a small bundle of newspaper, which I carefully unwrap. It was placed in the decoration box by mistake, but it belongs in the one with our Christmas ornaments. It's my favorite, a hand-blown glass bulb in swirls of blue and white. Asher made it for me when he was six, after we left Braden behind in Boston, and I got a divorce. I had a booth at a county fair that fall, selling honey, and an artisanal glassblower befriended Asher and invited him to watch her in her workshop. Unbeknownst to me, she helped to make an ornament for me as a gift. I loved it. Frozen in that delicate globe was Asher's childhood breath. No matter how old he was or how big he grew, I would always have that. Just then, my cell phone rings. Asher, if he's not texting, I know he knows he's in trouble. You better have a good excuse, I begin, but he cuts me off. Mom, I need you, Asher says. I'm at the police station. Words scramble up the ladder of my throat. What? Are you all right? I, I, I'm, no. I look down at the ornament in my hand, this piece of the past. Mom, Asher says, his voice breaking. I think Lily's dead.
Hello, I'm Jennifer Finney Boylan, and I'm thrilled to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon. In this reading, one of the characters in the book, Lily, the character who mostly I wrote, although Jody did write one of her chapters. Anyway, in this chapter, Lily is about to start a new school year at a new school, and it's the first day of orchestra rehearsal. You'll hear Lily thinking a little bit about music, but she'll also think a little bit about gender and the way gender affects everything. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Lily, Chapter 9, from Mad Honey. September 6th, 2018. Three months and one week before. There are so many gendered things in this world. Hurricanes. Bicycles, ice skates, ships at sea, even countries, Mother Russia, Uncle Sam, and of course, the planet itself. Let Earth receive her king. Sometimes it makes me wonder about all the time we spend tearing out our hair, labeling things, and how some of the results of all that work are dubious at best. It was Mark Twain who noticed that, in German, the noun for fish is masculine, the one for fish scales is female, and the word for fishwife is neuter. These are the thoughts that go through my head as we, boys, girls, even a couple of non-binary folks, gather here in the Adams High School gym for the first day of the Coos County Honors Orchestra Rehearsal. All around me are my fellow musicians, tuning up their instruments, students not just from Adams, but from half a dozen other regional high schools. Surely an instrument is neither male nor female, they're just things that make sound. Strings and bows, brass and wood, mallets and cymbals and drumskins and little metal triangles. And yet, all you have to do is look around at these musicians to see the way that even sound is gendered. In the middle of the orchestra is the brass section. Tubas, trombones, trumpets, French horn, every last one of them played by boys. It's not all that different in the woodwinds where the boys play bassoons and clarinets, but all the flutes are played by girls. The strings are even more ridiculous. The deeper the instrument, the more likely it is to be played by a boy. So, all the basses, boys. Most of the cellos, boys. The violas, split half and half and all but one of the violins, girls. Then there's the harp, which I guess federal law requires to be played by a girl, and the percussion and kettle drums, which are usually played by boys. How weird is this? Most of us decided to play our instruments in third grade, a bunch of little kids who made our choices without even thinking about them. But even at eight years old, we were already running the gender maze that the world had set for us without even realizing it. That's why it's cool when you see someone breaking the expectations a little bit, like the absolutely huge dude who mans the piccolo, and the girl in the back row womaning the gongs and kettle drums, twirling her percussion mallets around like a badass. The oboist is female too, which is a little bit unusual. She's an Indian girl with a serious face, Mr. Pavlovsky, the conductor, taps his baton against his music stand, turns to her and says, 
Maya. And Maya gives the A, and the first violin, a guy named Derek, tunes to it. There's a moan of silence, and then Derek gives the rest of us his A, and then we all tune up to him. Mr. Pawlowski is an intense, thin man with a goatee. He looks kind of like a nice Count Dracula. He passes out the sheet music for the five pieces we're going to practice this fall, the Jupiter movement from Holst's The Planets, the Palazzian Dances by Borodin, a medley of movie music by John Williams, and Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf. The Prokofiev is going to be narrated by the goalie from the hockey team, this huge creature named Dirk Anderson, wearing a t-shirt that reads, Puck it. I met him two days ago on the first day of school in my English class. I guess getting the goalie to narrate Peter and the Wolf was some kind of coup for Mr. Pawlowski, but just looking at this kid gives me a sinking feeling. Obviously, no one here has practiced any of this music, except maybe for me, because I played Jupiter back in the Point Reyes Orchestra three years ago. But Mr. Pawlowski seems to have a lot of faith in his players, because he asks us to give the John Williams piece a go. And just like that, he raises his baton, counts it off, and we start in on the theme from Star Wars. How does it sound? Not good. What it sounds like, in fact, is the music that would go with that movie if Emperor Palpatine killed everybody in the first 30 seconds. Good, good, let the hate flow through you. Mr. Pawlowski taps his music stand with his baton, then raises one hand and holds the bridge of his nose with his fingers. He stands like that for a long time, like his brain is bleeding from the inside and he's trying to stop it. He sighs, then turns to all of us. Again, he says, and the horrible noise begins anew. It's gonna be a long semester. And again, another first, I think that was our first ever dual reading. So our first dual reading and our first co-authored book on the podcast. I love that we're still offering you new things. If you want to discover the sensational writing collaboration that is Mad Honey, then go out and grab yourself a copy from your local independent bookshop. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton. The book is available now in all good bookshops and in our shop on bookshop.org. So let's get it on the charts in the UK as well. Please share this episode with anybody you know who loves a gripping read and follow both the writers on socials so you can follow their tour. It is fantastic. Thank you for listening and join us again soon.